I was speaking, I guess, about a week ago, maybe a little more, um, and I said I'd talk about four topics, and I only managed three of them, so I somewhat felt like I should really talk about the other one and not leave it another two years to finish that particular part of the talk that started in 2015, um, which is possibly relevant to those of you who heard what I said about it, and for some of you, it doesn't really matter, but uh, I started a talk on parami here on this retreat in November 2015 and I guess today I get to finish it. I hope. I might of course not get through what I have to say. It might continue. But that's my intention. And perhaps it's uh, not at all unfortunate that the topic that is the one I hadn't yet covered in this series of, uh, of the parami of metta is, uh, you know, as perhaps all of them are, but certainly this worthy of a a full talk and perhaps more than that, but uh, we'll see where it goes. I think I might have said when I spoke last time, and it's not an uncommon thing for us to think of this Buddhist path of practice, the, the Dharma as we call it, as a, as a wisdom practice, as a, as a wisdom tradition in fact, sometimes called. And can sometimes be that from that perspective we might conceive or imagine that the practices of cultivating the heart, of metta, loving kindness and friendliness are somehow secondary practices and we might even imagine that they're really sort of substitutes for people who can't do really deep concentration meditation or you know attain sort of liberating insights of wisdom and uh, awakening and that's very much not the case and so the you know that the, as a as a parami metta is one of the the beautiful qualities of heart that can be cultivated that can be brought to fullness to fruition to completion that the the buddha and the tradition speaks of as as beneficial as wholesome it's interesting to note that sati is not one of the parami mindfulness wakefulness that in itself isn't one of the parami. Although it's very useful, but it's kind of good to have it in perspective. It's not one of, in a way, the qualities of heart that are the point of what we're doing. It's the vehicle, we could say. And so nothing to be taken away from it. But from here, what I want to, uh, just in terms of the parami and in terms of the significance of the development of this quality of heart, which I'll speak about more. But just to really put it in its clear, sort of an appropriate place, I think the, uh, the commonly or frequently quoted exchange between Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha and is also his cousin, um, with the Buddha is, uh, is, is worth just naming here. And uh, Ananda, as he often does, unfortunately seems to get things slightly wrong and he's kind of the one who... Seems to be a little bit the butt of the joke, or the the fall guy in the um, you know the stand-up routine between the wise Buddha and somebody else. But on this occasion, he, he he comes up to the Buddha and he says, you know, Lord, is it would it not be true to say that half of our practice is for the cultivation of loving kindness and friendliness, the development of metta? And the Buddha responds from him and says, No, Ananda, it would not be true to say da 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 da. da. It would be true to say that all of our practice, the whole of our practice, is for the cultivation of metta, for loving kindness, friendliness. And so clearly this is something that the Buddha sees as very important in the 
and the framework and the vision of his teaching. And when we talk about this quality of metta, I think it's important to reflect on and to remember that it's a, a quality, and I guess probably most of you are familiar with the phrase, the term, and probably the practices associated with it. But this, this quality of a, of a friendliness, of a kindliness, of a, of a lovingness, we could say. And the use of the word loving complicates a little bit because it seems for many of us what we experience in many situations is a response that we might not call loving. And we kind of feel like, oh, how am I supposed to get to that place? We're speaking in terms of kindliness or friendliness. One sees, oh, that's not a sort of like a, a condition that we have to have arising in our heart or mind. It's actually a way of responding to. Friendliness or kindliness is a way of acting, a way of responding. And yes, it's founded in an attitude of well-wishing which we could understand and, you know, to see what metta is, we can perhaps clarify it some by contrasting it to what's described as its far enemy, i.e. the opposite quality of metta is ill will. The wish for others not to be well, so to speak, ill will. So in a sense we could say it's also, oh, it's goodwill. That wish for the well-being, the welfare, the uplift, of others, of beings, and of course for oneself also. So a sense of caringness and friendliness as a way of relating to others and to experience. And it's also a quality of attention which we learn to cultivate and develop as that attitude of caring about what we encounter in our experience and the, the friendliness that allows our heart to be open to being touched by what is coming into our experience, not just beings and people, but in fact, whatever comes into our experience, the openness of the heart to receive that, to, to offer space for it to be there. This is also an expression, an attitude, and a manifestation of, um, of metta, which is very much an essential part of a of an effective or a, or, or a transformative attending that we might engage in in the process of insight practice. That there needs to be that there. And um, of course we can also recognize and acknowledge that metta in itself, sometimes spoken about as a, as a, as a topic, we can stabilize the mind, steady the heart-mind on the intention for kindliness and friendliness as a way of developing calm and tranquility. So it, it, it appears within the, the different frameworks of obviously the cultivation of the heart, metta and the Brahma-vihara practice, but equally in the realm of insight practice and in the realm of samatha, this quality is more than just important, it's essential. And so it has this way of expressing itself, this particular quality that can be cultivated and developed as a, as a parami, as I said, it has a way of expressing itself as the capacity to connect with in a caring way, to connect with others, to connect with ourselves, to connect with experience in a caring way, with a sensitivity and, a, and an openness. And these are qualities which 
Again, we need in order to come close to and in order to see clearly what's happening in our experience. Equally as we need them for the well-being of our heart and the, the health and the, the fulfillment that's possible through relating in a wholesome way and th from a foundation of kindliness and friendliness. And metta is understood in the teaching and the Buddha speaks of it as having its proximate cause which is the condition or the, the, the quality that is most immediately conditional or conditioning its arising or its availability, the proximate cause. There's many causes for anything that arises, but the proximate cause in terms of metta is described as uh, appreciation. And it's, uh, again, in the, in the sort of the, the context of the Buddha's teachings, we might see a lot of encouragement to attend to and to acknowledge and to really deal with, or if not deal with, own and and recognize the, the the truth of dukkha, that field of things which we probably don't notice a great degree of appreciation arising in response to. It's not our first thought when you think dukkha. Oh, I really appreciate dukkha. Now, acknowledging dukkha, we might appreciate the acknowledgement, but the actual dukkha. That's a bit more of a stretch for most of us to appreciate it. And so what it's saying is that there's an invitation and in practice here, clearly, to also and equally turn our attention to the positive, to that which is wholesome, beautiful, uplifting, inspiring, noble, that we see in others, in ourselves, and in the world. Because its appreciation comes when we turn our attention to the positive. So... Appreciation is the proximate cause for, um, for the arising of friendliness, kindliness and metta. And it arises from that acknowledgement of the, the wholesome. So in that turning to the positive and the allowing ourselves to reflect on that which brings us to the quality and the possibility of appreciation and therefore supports the arising of the, the capacity and the intentionality for friendliness, for responding in a caring, kindly connected way to ourselves, to others and to experience as it unfolds. We can recognize in that that this isn't somehow saying we're being told to disregard the acknowledgement also of the difficult or that which is problematic. And so there's a balance that needs to be struck between what might be recognized as our tendency to focus on the negative in a not always skillful way. We kind of, we, we may be aware of the sort of the, the modern scientific sort of recognition and articulation of how our, our basic survival drives work but whether or not we look at the science we can look at ourselves and see it quite clearly I think if we attend inwardly that the tendency for most is that we notice the problems and the difficult things much more quickly and it seems enthusiastically than we notice the things that are just okay or even the good things I remember once having the experience I was a when I was working at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, um, 
in the, in the 90s as a resident teacher there, and we went for a, a staff trip to the beach. And it was this glorious sunny day. It was this gorgeous Atlantic coast. There was these lovely people all around. I was lying on a large towel in the soft, warm sand, being completely covered by the warm rays of sunshine, apart from one square millimeter where a fly was biting me. And I was trying to get my attention to notice the 99.9% of my body that was experiencing really pleasant things. And I couldn't. I could only notice for quite a while this one little spot that was going, ouch. Well, I was going, ouch. It was just going, not pleasant, not pleasant. And we see in a situation like that very clearly, oh, look at that. I could actually start to feel really miserable here. This is horrible. I'm getting savaged by a fly. Really? And yet what we can see is that our system is wired that way. We're designed to look for danger first, to notice, to make sure. You know, going back a few thousand years, not that long ago in human history, we were wandering around. We didn't really have houses. We might have had caves if we were lucky. We didn't have weapons particularly. We might have had sticks and stones. It was not that long ago in our history. Basically, you wander out somewhere and there's an apple and there's a tiger. Now, it doesn't really matter if you don't see the tiger straight away. Sorry, it doesn't really... I messed that one up, didn't I? It doesn't really matter if you don't see the apple straight away, does it? It's still going to be there five minutes later. If you don't see the tiger straight away, you're done. That's it. It's all over. Saber-toothed tiger, going back to where I'm thinking. And that's just a simple expression of actually how much of our basic survival wiring operates. First of all, make sure you're not going to get eaten. Because you don't get a second chance. If you don't spot the yummy things, you can spot them later. But what that means is we have a very strong bias towards noticing what's not okay. And if you look at what sells newspapers or gets people to tune in to the internet or TV stations, it's not about the good things that happen generally. What gets people to tune in is the horrible, terrible, bad, nasty things going on. And newspapers don't sell when they report how one neighbour gave their other neighbour a cake or a half dozen eggs. They report when one neighbour, you know, hit their other neighbour with a saucepan. That gets in the news. And, of course, somewhat more extreme versions of the same thing. So there's a process that we need to attend to about recognising that bias and reorienting that's actually a foundation for the cultivation and the development of of our open hearted capacity for for friendliness it doesn't mean well just to say that survival wiring has its place but it doesn't lead to happiness and well-being evolutionary processes aren't concerned with that particularly survival mechanisms aren't concerned with that Survival mechanisms mechanisms aren't meant to make us feel good. After all, they're basically trying to keep us alive and we're going to die. So they're bound for failure as well. But in terms of metta, there's the sense of turning towards the positive, the sense of an invitation to open. That doesn't mean we abandon or disregard our capacity to recognize what is harmful, what is not wholesome, And at times, the need to say no in response to that. And uh, I'm seeing my fourth talk coming on already. 
sorry. Um, there's a lot of material here. Anyway, so I'll just stay with the, the flow as it goes. That sense of recognizing what's wholesome and what's not wholesome is a different process to just the way we tend to habitually fixate on what is threatening and negative, which leads to a contraction, a tightening, a closing of the heart and a restriction in our access to a sense of openness and friendliness and kindliness. And in this context, one could perhaps again usefully reflect upon the, again, famous teaching of the Buddha, the simile of the saw, in which the Buddha, you know, offers as an injunction to his followers. He says, you know, even if you were to be sawn in half by bandits using a two-handled saw, that person who didn't have loving kindness in their heart for those bandits would not be a follower of my teaching. And one kind of thinks, well, that's putting the bar quite high, really. You know, um, and it might... I think, you know, the wisdom of it is, of course, not that one shouldn't do all that one can to actually preserve one's well-being and fight or escape if you could. I don't think it's saying that at all. Or just say, okay, yeah, you need to saw someone up. Hey, take me, you know. It's all right. I don't think it's that at all. It's more that really if there is no way out of this, if this is going to be your last moments, how do you want to go out? Do you want to go out full of fear? Do you want to go out full of hatred? And what seems like quite justifiable anger? Or do you want to go out with, oh, wow. And the intention towards loving kindness doesn't mean you have to be full of warm, loving feelings. It might just be an ability to turn towards what's happening and say, okay, this is my last moment. These are the beings I'm spending it with. Interesting. I'm not sure I really want to have opportunity to test that particular invitation of the Buddha. But there's something about that sense of profound commitment to where we want to orient our heart in any situation, no matter how difficult it might be. And so this, this basis of orienting towards what's actually wholesome or positive, that sense of being able to turn towards that, which will then allow appreciation to arise. And so appreciation, this proximate cause for metta, for friendliness, for kindliness to arise. I find it a, a lovely word in the English language, at least, um, because of the different flavors and ways that it expresses aspects of what this what's in this territory here. Appreciation in English, as I imagine many of you will be quite familiar with the word, it has a range of meanings. And one of the meanings, perhaps often that comes, is a sense of gratitude. When we say, I appreciate that you did that for me. It's like, oh, actually, I'm thankful, I'm grateful. So it's connected with a sense of gratitude. When we acknowledge what we appreciate, we naturally feel gratefulness. And the second meaning is that it's actually we value it. If I appreciate something, we also have a sense of, oh, this has value for me. 
That's connected with why I'm grateful, obviously. It has value. We also say when something appreciates, it becomes more valuable. For something to appreciate, it actually increases in value. Like our, um, you know, if we had an investment and it appreciates, that means it, it doesn't mean it's enjoying things. It means it's becoming more. And so, oh, appreciation or something appreciating actually has a, it's a process in which the value in it is increased. So that's, again, significant to note. To actually sit in the place of appreciation is, in a curious way, to have that place where appreciation is taking place, it is increasing in value by being able to recognize value. And be grateful for it. And there's a, a fourth way we use the word appreciation. It's a little different but totally connected here. We use the word appreciation to describe understanding things. Oh yeah, I really appreciate what you're getting. It doesn't just mean I understand it. it act, sorry, it doesn't just mean I like it. I appreciate what you're saying. It's nice poetry. But I can appreciate even a, a poorly constructed sentence that expresses something which I understand. And appreciation means understanding also for us. There's a connection between understanding something and our heart opening to it. Does that make sense? Do you follow the way these different aspects of appreciation in a way interface with and support each other? Um, A a student who um, has sat, I think, this retreat certainly some years before, and she, she was here for three months, and when she left... Um, and, and we met quite regularly over the time she was here, she, she gave me a, a little phrase that she'd made quite a little beautiful sort of, sort of hand-lettered piece of paper. And, that with it, and, it, and it said, and it's still on my wall in my room, probably 15 years later, 10 years later, it says, there isn't anyone you couldn't love once you've heard their story. And it was very beautiful, simple, clear expression of something. I don't know who might have said it first. Maybe it was her. Maybe it's a well-known saying. There isn't anybody you couldn't love once you have heard their story. And again, that connection between understanding, that quality of appreciation that understands, and the potential for, for a loving and caring response to arise when we understand that those things in beings that we might find it difficult to open our heart to arise out of conditions that were not in their control. Reliably, just as for ourselves, those things in ourselves that we don't find it easy to open to or to love and care about equally arise out of conditions and circumstances that were not in our control. And it's always like this. And so there's an invitation here in this orientation, in this turning towards the cultivation, the development of this quality, this parami of, of metta, this quality which was one of the, the ten qualities, as I said a, little, a few days ago, that, that were the, the fulfilling of the, the human potential beyond just awakening and liberation, but actually the full rounding out of the human being in all the ways that a human being can become more fully human, in fact.
And so through this process of appreciation, we're invited to reconnect with our own wholesome, noble intentions, our goodness, the good actions, the good deeds, the good intentions, the very value and the very preciousness of our existence and our life. Sometimes that's not easy for us, with ourselves, with others, sometimes even just experience, when we're equally invited to meet our experience in this way, in the spirit of metta, of kindliness, of friendliness, of openness and a willingness to connect, all of which are the ways that metta expresses itself. That sense of being open to receive, to welcome, to appreciate and to give space to. And this latter, I think a really interesting aspect of it, to give space, to allow something to have the space, to allow ourself, to allow another, just to have the space to be. Including the phenomena, the experiences that arise. Just giving them space. This is actually an immense kindness. We might notice for ourselves what it's like when we're given the space to be. We don't always need someone to tell us, oh, you're great, you're wonderful, I love you. That's nice when it happens. Sometimes it's not entirely nice when it happens. But what's always nice is being given the space to be, just where we are. That's always good. That's always uplifting. And so in the vision and the de development of the of the quality of metta, of, the, of our heart. And perhaps just to say here, I actually regard, and this isn't something scriptural, but it seems resonant and consonant with my experience and many conversations with many people over, over the years, the quality of metta is something intrinsic, is fundamental. What we don't have is the understanding of the way that fundamental intrinsic quality becomes constricted and limited through distorted perceptions and self-centered um, narrowing down of the channel through which you can move and therefore the sense of it being it feels like sometimes absent to us or inaccessible for us and so it's not necessarily that we're cultivating the capacity per se, as if it's something we don't have capacity for, I think it's more precise to say that we're developing and cultivating the access to it and its ability to move within us, through us and out into the, not just the world outside, but equally the world inside of our life. And to so this, this process of opening to, of receiving, of welcoming, of appreciating and giving space to, to beings, to living creatures, to living things. So we can start with human beings, then maybe animals and fish and birds and insects and maybe even small, creepy, crawly, slimy, slithery, sort of small ones floating around in the general soup of the ocean or the soup of our belly. You know, that starts to get a little more sort of a stretch for some of us, it seems. But we're invited equally to maybe start to sense the aliveness of the trees and the grass and the aliveness of the, the environment and the ecosystems. And maybe we may feel that sense that the very mineral life that is equally alive as, as vegetable life, as, as animal life, 
and the very phenomenal life of arising manifestation of sounds and sights and smells and tastes and anything that can be known in fact, that it has something of life in it and of it and can touch us. And at times in our practice when we're open and present and sensitive, we find ourselves touched by things that we might be surprised to believe can touch us this way. Not just a kind word from a beloved grandparent, but actually just a little shimmer from a pretty ordinary looking rock with a little shiny but just on the edge that catches the sun. And whoa, something. And is it the light? Is it the rock? Is it the place where my heart and mind are right now? Well, it's actually a little bit of all three of it, really. But it touches us just as deeply sometimes. So we may, we may have a sense of including phenomena, including experience in the field of that which we extend love and kindness towards being open in our heart. And there's a, there's a teaching from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition which is both beautiful and challenging in a certain way, which suggests that one could be filled with loving kindness and compassion towards all beings because all beings have at some time in the myriad past lives that you have been through from the perspective of this tradition, they've all been your mother. Um, now, I think it's been somewhat hard for some of the traditional teachers and certainly the Dalai Lama have talked, has talked about this that to imagine other beings have all been your mother doesn't necessarily for Westerners instantly evoke a sense of friendliness towards them and um, you know there's a whole different cultural historical context for what that might evoke for you and I um, but you know as far as I've heard it from what he's had to say he just can't understand how that can be that imagining someone else was your mother doesn't help you feel good towards them so, um, you know, if we experience negativity, anger, frustration, disappointment, or any number of other things in relationship to our experience of mother and of mothering, um, it may not be the most useful association to bring to mind for the cultivation of matter. But there is something interesting nonetheless in that sense of all beings have been my mother. What might that mean? And even if we have a little difficulty, as I know it seems, you know, I hear people sometimes do with the idea of, you know, rebirth and uh, that whole kind of cyclic existence. Um, and I really don't have any need to myself or for anyone else to take a position either way there. But if one actually feels into what that whole image and teaching is perhaps pointing to, you might understand that when someone comes to mind, you take birth in relationship to what's there. We actually take birth on a moment-to-moment -moment level in relationship to whatever we're attending to. So if I've got someone in my mind, the me that's taking birth right now is doing so in relationship to that person I'm thinking of. And from one perspective, we say, oh, that makes them my mother. I'm only getting to take birth here in this moment in relationship to them. And in a certain way, the who I take myself to be is born from who I take them to be or in relationship to who I take them to be. So in that way, one could clearly say, oh, yeah, actually, whenever I think of a being in a certain sense, in that moment, they are my mother. Not just they were my mother, but they are that in which I'm in relationship to which I'm taking birth. So... Maybe 
again, there might be a way in which we find a sense of, oh, oh look what's happening here, that invites an opening, an opening in that direction. And likewise with, in fact, every sight, every sound, every smell, taste, touch, and thought or feeling. So far as we arise unconsciously, we take birth in relationship to them. To each phenomena we're in contact with, we are constantly reborn. That's the nature of the process that we understand as we investigate and look and see clearly into what takes place moment to moment in terms of the arising and creation of our experience. And if we're present, conscious, and there's a certain degree of wakefulness and discerning wisdom available, then it's not so much that we take birth in terms of a sense of solid identity being born and, of course, at some point having to become to dissolve, to die, we could say, to use that birth-death language. Um, and I'm not talking about the physical body's birth and death, but the sense of self arising and dissolving. If we identify with it, it's birth. This is bhava and it's death equally when the condition changes. When we're conscious, when we're present, there's some wisdom. We see that the shape and the experience that we could say we arise as or in or with, and all those words are slightly less than quite perfect, but there isn't a better way to say it. Um, we arise, or this experience, we could say, arises. And that's not saying it quite perfectly either, but dependent upon the matrix of conditions that are manifesting in this moment together with the presence that is knowing them. So in that sense, again, we're being born of this. We're being born of this, we could say in an ordinary language. We could say we're arising dependent on a matrix of conditions, but it's a bit more of a mouthful. But it's like, oh yes, these conditions, that's our mother, to say it simply. This is what we're coming in to this moment together with and to a certain extent from. And so so this invitation to cultivate loving kindness, friendliness, a, a warm-hearted, caring connection or willingness to open to, to be intimate with, to connect with others and in one sense to wish well for others which is the one of the formal expressions of the cultivation of metta as a brahma vihara as a as a as a divine abiding of the heart a wholesome place but also as a as a kind of an orientation within the practice of of waking up where it's not so much to where trying to cultivate a sense of friendliness or extend a sense of well-wishing, but we're more abiding in the presence of and the presence with the experience, the phenomena, and equally ourself or another, within a sense of openness, sensitivity, and care. So this isn't just some kind of mechanical sort of process in which I'm observing phenomena. And it's not some kind of um, like scientific thing where I'm standing at some safe distance removed and um, taking note of the things that take place. 
but that one understands the location of the experiencing to be inseparable from what is being experienced. And there's a way in which that expresses a kindness. Because it gives everything its place and sets us not apart from above nor below. Not apart from, not above, not below. What is here in any moment. So part of what allows this to happen is the way in which we start to see and sense and feel more and more deeply the shared ground of our lives, the shared ground of our existence, and that we find our heart beginning to open to this, this that is shared. And fundamental within that is the vulnerability of this shared existence that is precious, that we value, that we appreciate, but that is not forever. And the vulnerability that goes with this which is precious, but not forever. That I can know my own life as, and the life of another as. Precious, but not forever. There's a profound vulnerability in this. That naturally, when we allow ourselves to be impacted by it, moves our heart towards this deepening capacity of kindliness. And... It's a poem I'd like to share by uh, a Palestinian-American, Naomi Shihab Nye, a beautiful poem entitled Kindness. And I'm going to take the liberty to translate one term that I think this poem is written a little while ago. Not that long ago, but anyway. It's entitled Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Native American in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out in the day, out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you, everywhere, like a shadow or a friend.
And I just like to comment on the phrase that sadness is the other deepest thing. I don't really want to, I don't think the poem needs analyzing, it speaks for itself. But for me, what this is pointing to is not the sadness of sort of misery or desolation, but more the, the tender poignancy of the open heart in its loving capacity in the encounter with loss. When we love, we will also experience loss. And just as love is sweet in the presence of what we love, so too it is poignant and painful in the presence, sorry, in the absence of what we love or the loss of what we love. And to open to sadness and that poignancy is actually also to open to the sweetness of the loving and being open to love in the presence of what we care about or in the remembrance and the recollection of what we care about deeply. To equally have the space in our heart to be able to feel the poignancy of its loss and in fact the poignancy of its, if it's still there, its inevitable ultimate loss. Without having to anticipate that. But just bearing that in mind actually allows the heart to stay open. And beautifully, powerfully so. And then, as Naomi Shabnai says, she says, and in kindness raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. There is no reason to depart from this territory when we can open to and hold the tenderness, the poignancy it brings with it. This quality of kindness, of caring, of valuing deeply and loving. And so the Buddha said the whole of this practice is for the cultivation and the development of loving kindness, of metta, of friendliness. What that might mean, I've often reflected. And I don't know if I have the answer. But for me, what it seems to mean is that the very movement of love or of kindliness, friendliness, is an expression of something having been healed. And what's healed in the limitation on our heart's natural capacity for friendliness, the limitation that comes through the experience of perhaps more that is difficult to bear than we are able to bear at times and often for us early in our lives and the sense of shutting down the caring because it involves too much that is tender and poignant beyond what we can bear and it creates a sense of separateness and that shutting down and that pushing away and that needing to distance we create division we create disconnection and the movement of tenderness, friendliness, loving kindness and care, we can call love, it heals that sense of the gap, the division between self and other, between me and you, or me and the world, or me and this phenomena arising right here, me and the infinite vastness of the cosmos. Love is that capacity which sees through, or perhaps feels through, the appearance of separation 
And the wisdom of love, its transformative power, is that it sees what it sees is not other. It doesn't, dist- doesn't mean there isn't difference or individuality, particularity, uniqueness, in fact. But not other. Not other. To not see what we see in what we call out there, or what we see in what we call in here. To not see that as other. This is really what love offers us. And in that gives us access to the capacity to respond from this deeper truth of our non-separateness. And to, in a way, fill the space of the appearance, the apparent separation. It's in fact the quality of love that fills the space and heals the breach that separation creates. Actually, I think I am going to finish this talk today. Um, At one point I wasn't sure, just in case you're wondering. So what we're talking about here in the development of this metaparami, this this quality that is in a simple way known easily as just a friendly caring and well-wishing, but that has within it a, a vast range and transformative capacity, is we start to come into the into the realm and the uh, I don't know the field of what we could describe as awakened benevolence. We could see, I think, and understand this as one of the primary and profound aspects of what is called in some Buddhist traditions Buddha nature or awakened nature, the essence of this in the way it's able to be met without trying to define it as something or make it into something, but in the way that it can be recognized. and It's almost like the the visible face or the incounterable dimension of what we could call Buddha nature is on the one hand love and on the other hand awareness. But that's another talk. So this one's the aspect of the awakened nature, the innate character of Buddha, of wakefulness, has not just awareness but love. And in that it includes the the beautiful qualities of mudita also, of joy, of appreciative joy. And that quality of appreciation comes to fore within the larger sense of the heart of metta, kindness, love and friendliness, in the contact with that which is lovely, beautiful and wonderful, the good fortune of others or of ourselves, that there's an appreciation and a celebration that becomes available and accessible in the heart. It's, that's something that's part of that fullness of, of, the, of the capacity of the heart in this realm of awakened benevolence of metta and the quality of karuna, of compassion, of, of a kind of a tenderness and a trembling, anukampa is the word the Buddha used for trembling with, that sense of resonance where we feel another as we feel ourselves. 
And in, in the, those moments where we resonate, from which there's a natural wish to respond, and that's the specific response of karuna, of compassion. But that resonance is because we're not, uh, and something in us is recognizing that we're not separate. We're vibrating, we're resonating like two instruments producing the same note. And I'm not musical, as some of you may know, but um, I know I think this is an accurate metaphor. Um, two instruments producing the same note and they're vibrating the same. So you can't say it's my note or your note anymore, even though the instruments are not the same. There's a, a coming together in the resonance and this quality of the heart to resonate speaks to the non-separate nature of our experience and evokes the natural response, the healthy and the full response of wishing to care for, to heal. And the beautiful words of Rio Khan I always bring to mind or, or like to reflect and remember in this context, uh, a Zen monk of the uh, 17th, 18th century, a, a hermit and a wonderful poet, and one response to seeing suffering, he said, Rio Khan said, Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all of the suffering beings in this floating world. This has this, for me, the sense of just sort of, just opening up, not just one's robe, but one's heart. And he had an amazing heart, Rio Khan. If you read his poetry, it's so beautiful. And just gathering it in, just taking this world in to one's heart. And this, this is really part of the, the fullness and the fruition of, of metta, the, the metta parami. Its expression is what's known in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition as bodhicitta, the wish to live and to awaken one's life for the welfare and the well-being of all beings, of all of life, to practice for well, the benefit of all beings, to awaken for the benefit of all beings. And this is really the invitation of our practice. This, as I said when I spoke here last week, the, the movement of the Buddha himself in his early journey, whether a previous lifetime or whether just in his own development and trajectory within a life that we know recorded historically, of recognizing the possibility of not just liberation for oneself, but actually the life can be devoted to the well-being and the liberation of all. And this is really, for me, why Gaia House is here, why we're all here. In another way, I actually think it's why the whole of the cosmos is here, but that's another talk as well. So I'd like to finish with the words of Shanti Deva, who lived in the 6th century and a uh, beautiful teacher, poet, mystic and uh, remarkable teacher of this path and practice of, of bodhicitta, of the undertaking to awaken for all beings. And he speaks in the Bodhicharya Vatara, which is the way, the, the way of the Bodhisattva. He says, and I've got a free translation of his own vow and dedication, which I'd like to finish with. He says, May I be a guard for those who are without protection, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across water, may I be a, a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed, and for all who need a servant, 
May I be a slave. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the trees of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus for every single thing that lives, vast in number, like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So may we all here in our practice deepen in this beautiful metta parami. And may our practice truly serve and contribute to our own welfare and to our awakening for the welfare of all beings, for all of life, for all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.